Good morning. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. You know, sometimes we sing the words of songs and we go, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. Um, But it really fits with what we're going to be talking about today and over the next few weeks. Think about it this way. If you look back at your life and you see how God has cared for you, how he has helped you, how he has helped others in ages past, um, if you come to a trial in your life today, do you think he's going to fail you? We say, when we're not in a trial, of course not. But we're in the midst of a trial, we go, Lord, where are you? He's still there. And so we're going to look at... um, that today. Let me just put this down here. So we're kicking off a new series. We've finished all the books completely. Um, so James is finished and some of the smaller pa- passages we've been looking at are, are done. We're going to start a, a new series in an Old Testament book today. And in the end, it is actually a love story. How many like a good love story. All right, so a few of you out there, good. Well, it's the kind of story that um, you might like to hear from somebody long after the beginning of the story, maybe sitting down for a cup of coffee or tea and having somebody sit down with you who has gone through a deep personal trial and at the end has come out pure gold. It's a very personal story about a husband and a wife who fell in love, and they started out so, so well. They loved each other, they had great aspirations for the future, and they had, it's clear, a deep desire for success in life. This couple came from the rural farmland of Israel. It was a peaceful community of friends. It's a kind of a town that You knew everybody, and everybody knew you. And there were no strangers at all. As happens, even now, the man fell in love with a woman, and he proposed to her. He asked her to marry him. And she said yes. And soon the two were wed. And as many married couples will tell you on the day of their wedding, what do you hope for as you look forward in this marriage? And they'll say something like this, I hope to live happily ever after. Right? I don't know if they said this or not, but uh, if this was around back in those days, they might have said something like this in their vows. For richer or poorer, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. How many of you said something like that in your wedding vow? Okay, now, when you said it, what you were really hoping for was just the good stuff, you know? What you're hoping for, as most couples who repeat these vows, are hoping for only the good part of the vow, a life of richer and better and health and life. And may the Lord grant it to you. But trials come our way too. And it sure seemed like that would be the case at the beginning of their marriage, 
It wasn't long before the Lord showed them favor and they had a son. In the Bible, it says, Psalm 127, 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And the Lord rewarded them by giving them a son. And that wasn't all. Soon they welcomed another boy into their family. And now they had two. And so we have a family of four at this point. And it seems that for quite a while, this happy family enjoyed the blessing of God. And as the years passed on and uh, they followed the Lord and God promised them, as he did to all of the Jews in Leviticus 26, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none of you will make, uh, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. Wow, what a promise. Now, they could look back in whatever national problems there had been, to them seemed like a distant past, distant memory. It seemed like decades had passed since there had been any trouble. And it appeared to be a peaceful and delightful time of history to them. It was a time when the rain was producing crops, and trees were producing fruit, and grain came in abundance. There was plenty of food, and there was peace and security. What a great time in history to be raising children. Right? If only life could continue that way. But all was not well. For lurking beneath the surface of peace, a trial was about to fall. And into this serene and fruitful family life, tragedy would soon strike. You know, we all like times of peace. We all like times of prosperity. We all like times when everything is going our way. But during those sweet times, we rarely see growth in our lives. Do you know that? That's not the time for growth. Our faith is not challenged. And we never mature in our Christian character during the good times. Oh, we may enjoy them. But the time for growth is the time when we suffer trials. When your job is secure and there's money in the bank, and food on the table, and everyone is healthy and well, well, how well does your character grow? How will you learn to trust in God in those times? So, let's introduce you to the family. They're found in the book of Ruth. You're right. (laughs) Some of you are tracking with me. So let's take a look at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. We're just going to read a few verses this morning. We'll take them one verse at a time. So verse 1 says this, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Wow. Verse 1 really packs a lot of information into one sentence. So let's look at it uh, word by word. First of all, it's a true story. This really happened in Israel. And it's a story about God's sovereignty, a story about his discipline, 
His uh, providence, His mercy, His kindness, and His redemption. I'm going to start off by saying this. God is at work in the darkest times of our life. Okay? Sometimes people think when they're going through trials, when they're going through difficulties, that somehow God has forgotten them. That simply is not true. Okay? God is at work in the darkest times of our life. The story takes place during the time of Judges in Israel. And so let's just give a quick history lesson here. God had delivered the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt. And Moses led them out into the wilderness, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time in the wilderness, God fed them manna, angel's food, all the way through the desert wanderings. After 40 years, they had a new leader, Joshua, who led them into the promised land, and they conquered um, territories, and they began to settle in these territories in Israel. And once they had defeated their enemies and they settled into the land, they took possession of the land, and the book of Judges tells us of a period of history of about 400 years. It's from about 1500 to 1100 B.C. And Israel at this time was not ruled by a king. God was their king. But Israel um, was settled. And during the good times when things were going well and the water was flowing and the fruit and the crops were coming in and everything seemed to be rosy, they began to fall into sin. And as they fell into sin, God punished them. And, you, and he did it by either bringing in invading armies or else he did it by uh, causing there to be famine or pestilence. And when they felt the punishment, when they felt the discipline from God, that's when they cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, enough. We come back to you. We were wrong. We've sinned. Forgive us for our sin and deliver us from our enemies. And God would raise up a judge, he was called, or a leader. And the leader would uh, lead the charge into uh, conquering the enemy, and God would give them peace. And sometimes the peace would be for decades, and other times it was for a shorter period of time. And so this cycle happened over and over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And you'll see that repeated with different judges and different uh, sins that they committed. At the very end of the book of Judges, we read in verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the book of Judges repeats this cycle. God's people sin. God disciplines them by sending enemies into their territory. They repent. God sends a judge. There's peace. Then they sin and so on. The cycle just repeats over and again. God is working, even in those times. And even in the dark times when they had sinned, God raised up uh, men and women. Uh, Deborah was one of the judges. And uh, they had faith in God and trusted God to deliver them, and he did. God is working even in the dark periods of our life, too. If, if you are a child of God this morning, you will know that by personal experience. When you sin, God disciplines you, and so he should. You're his child. In fact, God doesn't necessarily discipline children who are not his, people who are not his. But if you are a child of God, he, like a father, 
will not let you get away with things. And he will discipline you when you do wrong, when you turn from him. And he disciplines his own children who go astray. That's actually one of the evidences that we belong to him. If you've never been disciplined by the Lord, I would ask yourself, do you really belong to the Lord? Do you know him? It's one of the evidences that we are his children. And when we, come to, when we sin and the Lord disciplines us and we begin to recognize that what we have been doing is sin, what are we to do? The same thing Israel did. We cry out to the Lord and we seek his forgiveness. And there's a wonderful verse in the New Testament that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's when peace comes back into our life. The peace of God that passes all understanding. And if we continue living that way, uh, we will continue to have peace. Well, the events in the book of Ruth take place one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. There are times of peace. There are times of success. There are times of, um, of glory, really. But m- much of the time in the Judges, it's uh, wickedness and departure from God. The book of Ruth fits in the time period of the Judges. And we live in a day that's very similar to the period of Judges. It's a day of terrible departure from the Lord. Our society is doing what is right in its own eyes. Our society is full of immorality, full of greed, homosexuality, abortion, covetousness. And we wonder why there is so much trouble plaguing our society. It's not that we need better crops or better health care or higher wages or more things. As a nation, we need to turn to the Lord in repentance. And as individual believers, we need to turn to the Lord. We need to love Him, not run from Him. Well, next we read in verse 1, there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land. Let me just say something to you. Um, we often hear phrases or we hear things and we say, oh yeah, that's true. We ought, we ought to always think carefully about saying, oh yeah, that's true, um, in things that we hear. If there's a famine, is that a natural disaster? Don't shake your heads. Don't say yes. Don't say no. I'll tell you. It's not a natural disaster. We see hurricanes, we see floods, we see uh, volcanoes erupting, we see all of these sorts of things, and we say, oh yeah, just natural disasters. They're not natural disasters. They're supernatural disasters. And God is actually in control. You say, are you blaming God for them? No. God uses these things for his own purposes, for his own ends. And so there's a famine in the land. This was the hand of God. It was an act of God supernaturally controlling the weather and withholding the rain. You say, wasn't God being mean? No, that's what he said he was going to do. Listen again to Leviticus 26. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you the rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. It is God, we know in the scripture, it is God who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. God does that on a daily basis. But if he withholds his hand 
It is for judgment or it is for discipline purposes. And so if you've ever experienced a loss or you've ever experienced something where you didn't expect something to happen in life and it's troubling to you, think about what God might be trying to teach you. Think about uh, God trying to get your attention. Why did he withhold the rain? It's because they weren't obeying his commandments. It's because they had departed from the Lord. They were not following his laws. And the famine is God's punishment to bring them back to himself. There was famine in the land. Is God mean? That was the question. No, he's not mean. Do you know that God wants to bless you? Do you know that he wanted to bless them? And he said, if you just do this, this is how you will receive my blessing. And uh, he knows that if they continue down the path of sin, it will bring disaster upon them. But God is good. And his gifts are good. And he wants to do good to all. But he wants to stand in the way of the madness of their sin. And he sends famine into the land. Later in history, um, Solomon, so this is much earlier in history, but later when Solomon was king and he dedicated the temple to the Lord, he prayed this way. He said, Lord, um, well, the Lord was speaking. He says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and heal their land. The same thing applied in Ruth's day. If the people had turned back to the Lord, there was a famine in the land. You know, very often the Lord will bring judgment after judgment upon His people to bring them back to Himself. And what we call natural disasters and disease and accidents and famines and all of these sorts of things are all rods of correction in His hand. And we ought to recognize them as such. Rods of correction in his hand to cause people to turn from their wicked ways and turn back to him. There was a famine in the land. So what do you do? You're living in a land. You're living where food is scarce. There is no rain. Crops are not coming in. What do you do? What do you do when you face a problem? How do you handle it? There used to be a... Uh, I've shown this to people, and I think, Eric, you mentioned this recently in a sermon, too. Think of it this way. There's a mountain. That's gonna call, we're going to call it a problem. There's a mountain before you. And there's three ways of dealing with this problem. One is to come to that mountain and go another way and just take off, you know, or try to skirt around the problem. That never works because the problem is still there. It's that mountain. Okay, another way of dealing with the problem is to... To see the mountain say, yeah, boy, it's a problem, all right, and run the other way. And the third way, which is the way of faith, is to say, Lord, remove this mountain and let it be cast into the sea. And you work through to the other side. That's what God intends for us, is that we might move the mountain by faith. But that's not what happens here. They see the mountain. They see the problem. They see the trial. They see the test. And instead of Working through it, they turn and they run the other way. 
they run from God. So the, God sent the famine. The family saw the problem. And in the words of urban slang, they said, we out. Okay? I said that on purpose because the young people said to me on Friday, I'll bet you can't put that into your sermon. So I just did. We out. What on earth does that mean? I'll tell you later. Okay. They're getting out of there. They're running. They're fleeing. So I want to talk to the fathers here. This is not Father's Day, and, um, but I'm going to talk to you for a minute anyway. Fathers, husbands, you have an incredible responsibility on your shoulders. You are responsible not only for your own spiritual life, but if you have a wife and you have children, you're responsible for their spiritual life too. And the decisions that you make in life have a long-lasting, even eternal effect on your wife and on your children. Think about it. Think of the decisions that you make for your family. This, this decision that they were about to make, or that uh, Elimelech was going to make, was actually going to have uh, deadly consequences. And so off they go. And you know, I can just hear, it was a tight-knit little town. They came from the town of Bethlehem. And I can just hear the gossip in town. Where'd they go? What's with them? How come they left? What's going on here? Didn't the sons have a choice to stay? Where'd they go? A little trial and they just felt they had to up and leave? Are you kidding me? What's with those people? You can just hear the talk, right? And if you were to ask the father or the husband, he would say, Hey, I'm not, this isn't permanent. I'm just going for a little while. I'm just going to leave now while there's a trial, and I'll come back when it's over. All good, right? Wait till the storm passes by. When the trial's over, I'll return. So I want to look at this family as a prodigal family, because that's what they are, a prodigal family. First chapter of Ruth, it's a tragic story of a family from Bethlehem, Judah. So do we have a map we could put up real quick? So Bethlehem is this Bethlehem here. Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. We sing about it every Christmas. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Right? So you've heard about it, right? It's a famous little town. People flock there every Christmas. It's a town that is very, very well known. They don't sing, Oh, big town of San Francisco. It doesn't fit. Okay. But Oh, little town of Bethlehem. We know about it. Um, did they know at this time when they're facing this trial in the little town of Bethlehem that we would be singing about it every Christmas? I don't think so. But that's where they're from, Bethlehem, Judah. Did they know that they would be... Um, that God would raise up a prophet who would write about the Savior who would come from this town? Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Did they know that when they were facing this trial, that God actually fully intended to use this very family to be in the lineage of Christ. 
That's what, that was his intention. Did you know that from this family, the Messiah would come? Did they know that God had great plans for their life, for their future? There was a famine. That's all they saw. That's all they saw. So you're in a trial. Maybe you're in a trial today. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Do you know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Do you know that God is working on your character? Do you know that God has a purpose and a plan for your life individually? Did you know that God has a work for you to accomplish that will impact not only this generation, but generations to come and will be rewarded in eternity? Why would you run from that? Why would you abandon God's plan for your life? Why would you do that? Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 says this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You know, I think the Lord is speaking this morning to some. He has great plans for your life. Don't let the trial that is looming before you cloud your vision. Okay, Work through it. Go through the trial. Let the Lord have his way. Get to the other side. Because on the other side of that trial is amazing blessing. Amazing grace. He has plans for your life. But all you see before you is the difficult circumstances. Life doesn't seem fair. The trial is too large. The mountain is too big. But God wants you to work through the trial, not run from it. We have, seen, we have to see the hand of God in our trials. He sends dark clouds our way, and we fear them. There's a song we're going to sing at the end today. It's by William Cowper. It's a beautiful hymn. And it says very clearly what I'm trying to express here. He says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. So we are introduced in verse 2. Before we get there, though, let me just say this. In order to leave Bethlehem, they had to pass by Jerusalem, pass by Jericho, What's the big deal? Do they not remember what God did in history in Jericho? There was a great big city. It's a walled city. It's a huge city that they could not defeat by themselves. And God brought it down by what? By their might? Of course not. They walked around the city. Last day, seven times around the city. And God brought the walls down for them. God can do anything. You think that's a big problem? The city of Jericho was a big problem, but God defeated the enemy there. 
And then they had to cross over there, over to the other side of the Jordan River, and then down to Moab. It was about 60 miles, about a two days' journey, walking. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Um, in the King James, it says, and sojourned there, which is a little softer. The husband is Elimelech. His, his name means, interestingly enough, God is my king. If God is your king, wouldn't you do what God says? No. God is my king as far as my name is concerned, but not as my practice is concerned. Can I ask you, is God your king this morning? Is the Lord Jesus Christ truly the Lord of your life? The King of kings and the Lord of lords? You say yes, but is he by your actions? Could you say yes, he is really Lord of my life, ruling my life? The wife is Naomi. Her name means pleasant. It's the kind of person I wouldn't mind marrying. I have a wife who is pleasant, so I married her. And um, it's uh, a pleasant, that's what her name means, pleasant. Probably a cheerful disposition. Oftentimes, when you strap a child with a name, they often become like their name. Uh, I didn't. My name means ruler of the world, and I'm... (laughs) But But oftentimes, people... Are rep- represent what their name means. And so probably Naomi did. She, she says that later, that uh, she went out pleasant. They had two boys. I'm not sure about their names. Malon means sick or unhealthy. Hey, sick guy, come here, you know. And Chilion means pining or failing. So possibly they were both two sick kids. Um, probably I would have named them something different than that, but that was what they chose. Um, So in verse 2 it says, And a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to sojourn, that is to stay a little while, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And they went to the country of Moab, uh, verse 2, and remained there. So we have in verse 1 his thought. I'm just going to go temporarily. I'm going to go there until the trial's over, and when the trial's over, I'll come back. But verse 2 tells us what really happened. He remained there. You know the story of the prodigal in the New Testament. Well, here we have the story of a prodigal family. Why do people flee the Lord? I think sometimes it's because they don't like a challenge. I think it's sometimes because they don't like the circumstances that God has them in. Uh, Sometimes they become offended. Sometimes they become hurt. Life throws them a curveball. Any number of reasons why people flee from the Lord. And instead of seeing that God is sovereign and is causing all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are the called according to their purposes, they simply pack their bags and leave. We out. Okay, there we go again. Gone. They run. They go where they think things will be easier. Running from the Lord actually leads to bitterness and sorrow. And if we run from the Lord, can I ask you a question? To whom shall we go? At first, Elimelech didn't intend to run away forever, sojourning, staying a while. Famine is going on. Just I'll keep hearing news from the far country, and whenever I hear that things are better, we'll go back. But they became, uh, Moab became his permanent residence. Where did he go? Moab. What's wrong with that? Moab 
was a country that was an enemy of Israel. If you remember when the children of Israel came uh, from the wilderness and they were going to enter into the promised land, they passed through Moab, or they came to Moab, and they sought uh, food. Just let us have something. Let us pass through. We're not going to pillage you. We're not going to hurt you. Just give us something to eat. We'll pay you for it. And they refused. They wouldn't let them have anything. And so they went around it. And it was a country that was a pagan country, an idolatrous nation. They worshipped false gods. They offered their children as sacrifices to their God. And the family did not go to Moab as missionaries to win them to the Lord. They went to Moab for refuge from God. From God. Verse 3. Then Elimelech... Here, what we're going to be looking at here is the consequences of wrong choices. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now, let me say this first of all. Not every death is a result of wrong choices. Every death ultimately is as a result of sin, the consequences of sin. But not every death is a result of wrong choices. But in the context of what's happening in this family, it seems that it was, in his case, an untimely death. Elimelech went to sojourn. He settled in the idolatrous country, and that's where he died. God took his life, and he probably took it prematurely. You can almost hear him saying, you know, I'll just stay a little while. Um, I, I don't want to suffer the trial that the rest of the Israelites are going through. I know God is whipping uh, the children of Israel. He's punishing them or disciplining them for their uh, turning from him. But I'm going to go, I'm going to avoid the whipping. I'm going to a far country. But I'll tell you something. He got quite a whipping. What a tragedy it is for somebody to be away from the Lord and to die in that condition. 1 John 5, 6 says this. There is a sin unto death. It's um, a question as to what this means, but I think it means this. For Elimelech, this was his sin unto death. He went to a far country. He went into an idolatrous land, and the Lord took his life. It cost him his life. For Ananias and Sapphira, their sin unto death was what? Lying to God. Lying about uh, or boasting about giving the, um, more than they actually gave. For some in Israel, their sin unto death was that they rebelled against the leadership of Moses, and God slew them. For Onan, it was his selfishness. For some unrepentant Christians, it's partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Paul says some sleep, meaning some have died because they've done that. God judges. And for others, it is the sin of apostasy. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So now Naomi is in a foreign country. She has two young guys with her, her sons. So she's a widow in a foreign land. In Israel, if she had stayed in Israel, the Israelites would have taken care of her. They would have seen to it that they helped her um, in, in her need. But she's in a foreign land. They have no obligation to take care of her. But at least she has her two sons. And so now we want to ask the question, is Naomi any different than her husband? She went out because her husband led them out, and that's where they went. 
Now she's without her husband, and she has to make the decisions. What's she going to do? So you know what, sons? We've made a terrible mistake. Here we are prospering in um, Moab, but your father died. Let's go back and be with the people of God. She doesn't do it. She stays. And her sons then marry foreign wives. So verse 4. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. The first girl was Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. Okay? A little different spelling. She wasn't famous like the Oprah that we know about. Some people say that her name means stiff-necked. So just as an aside, guys, I just want to encourage you as you think about the possibility of getting married, not a good choice. Okay? Stiff-necked woman, not a good choice. Stay away from a stiff-necked woman. Your prayer should be instead, Lord, deliver me from a woman like that. Okay? And young ladies, I would say pray the same way about stiff-necked men. Okay? They're just as much trouble. The second girl was Ruth, and the book is named after her. Her name means friend. Her name means rectitude. Rectitude means righteousness, integrity, decency, morality. Wow, these are all good traits. So guys, ask the Lord for a woman like Ruth. And I hope in the weeks ahead you fall in love with her uh, as we go through this book. So if you have a choice between a stiff-necked girl or a woman of integrity, choose wisely. Okay? Anyway, that's off our point. Let's get back to the story. So Naomi stayed in Moab among idolatrous people. Now it's possible for her to think, well, you know what, I'll just stay here. I'll enjoy my boys. They've now married. And of course, after marriage comes grandkids. And that's going to bring joy to any grandmother to see the bouncing baby boy and the baby girl and just enjoy life and happy days would soon be upon her And uh, as all of these grandkids started coming one after the other. And she waited and waited and waited and waited and continued to wait for 10 years. No children. No grandkids, no laughter, no joy. Ten years. And then after ten years, her sons died. Both Malon, and, uh, verse 5, and Kilion uh, also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. You know, sometimes the Scripture tells us things, and sometimes the Scripture is silent. And sometimes the silence of Scripture is, el- is eloquent. And here, the um, Scripture is silent. And to me, it's ample evidence to show that neither the father nor his two sons ever repented of their sins and ever returned to the Lord. They ran from the Lord, and they never came back. Bitter are the consequences of sin. The way of the transgressor is hard. So it's a place to pause for reflection for just a minute. I want to ask you a question. Where do you stand with the Lord this morning? You know him. 
If you don't know him, today is the day of salvation. And he's offering his salvation to you, full and free, just for the asking. But if you do know the Lord this morning, and you're facing a trial, you're facing temptations, you're facing a difficult situation, it's a good time to think about it. Are you running from the Lord? Has he been trying to get your attention? Are you listening? Maybe he's brought sorrow into your life in order to show you that you need his help. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you're refusing to break. All I can say is that if you do not turn from your sin, this might be your sin unto death. The Lord has plans for you. The Lord loves you. The Lord has a future for you if you will turn from your sin and be used by him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, well, you could say, Don, you know, you don't know what I'm facing. It's such a difficult temptation. It's such a difficult time in my life. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also provide for you a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Let me tell you this, that the way of escape is not going back to your old ways. It's not going back to the old places where you used to sin. The way of escape is not going that way. The way of escape is the king's highway and a good pair of running shoes. And what do I mean by that? Well, the King's Highway takes you in the opposite direction of the path you traveled on at one time. And a good pair of running shoes helps you to get to where he wants you to be fast. Joseph resisted temptation. How did he do it? By fleeing. The young people wanted me to use that urban slang this morning, you know, we out. It can mean several things, so I'll explain it to you. It can mean, let's go party. Okay? That's how it's probably most often used. But I want to sanctify that we out phrase okay, for our purposes this morning. Because there's three other meanings to it. It means that we are trying to get away right away. In other words, there's something happening in our lives, we out. Meaning, we're out of here. Okay? It can mean, let's go. And it can mean, flee. And that's how I want to use it today. Okay? Flee. Flee. Flee, flee from trouble. The Bible says, um, and I'm not talking about facing your problem and turning and running to Moab. What I'm talking about here is instead seeing the problem, fleeing to the Lord, working through the problem to the other side. But here's what the Bible says about this. Flee sexual immorality. When it comes to sexual immorality, we out. Okay? Think about it. Every time you think about that phrase now, Think of it in those terms. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. When it comes to idolatry, worshiping something or someone other than God, again, we out. Then it says, uh, Paul says to Timothy, but you, O man of God, flee these things. What are the things he says to flee? The desire to be rich, the love of money, greediness. And when it comes to those things, we need to say the same thing. We out. Okay? Let me see you do it, okay, everybody? We out. Okay? You, okay, try again. We out. All right, now I got everybody doing it, okay? 
That you did not expect. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. Again, we out. Therefore, submit to God. The Bible says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's even better news. Okay? There are things that we are to flee from. But when, it's, when it comes right down to it, when it comes to sin, we are to resist the devil and hear him say, we out. Okay? He will flee from us. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons we can learn from it. We thank you, Lord, for the story of Ruth. And as we continue on in the study in the next few weeks, we pray that we might uh, see your hand at work in the life of someone who um, was really outside of the commonwealth of Israel, outside of the blessing of God. And yet, Lord, your amazing grace in working in this person's life. We pray, Lord, that we might be not like Elimelech and his sons, fleeing from you, but rather, Lord, fleeing to you, and fleeing away from sin, fleeing from um, the, the things that would drag us down. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.